Hello, it's Jamie here, and welcome back to Bloody Bites. And today we're going to cut our teeth on something new, because the subject is Royal Gems, Bauble and Bling, the power of precious stones. And yes, spectacle is everything. Kings want to be kingly. Majesty needs to project authority. And rulers always want to have pomp, circumstance, and spectacle. And the best way to do that is with vestments, with jewels, with headdresses, with a whole panoply of celebration and perhaps kitsch. And we've already done that tyrants and their lack of taste and some of those items might reappear in this podcast today but coronation the blend the fusion of the temporal and the spiritual the anointing the coronation all these things are important for majesty for kingship for presentation if you go back to the hebrew book of samuel the old testament the only mention of coronation, of a crowning, is the crowning of King David in the kingdom of the Ammonites, when he had a crown of uh, gold and precious stones placed upon his head. And so from then on, you can see this importance. You can see that coronation is vital for the people and for the ruler. And again, you see this in 331 BC, when Alexander the Great defeated Darius III, the Persian emperor, in the Battle of Gorgemala, when he, the night before, saw this blood-red moon and told his men that his army of 47,000 was going to beat the superior Persian army. And so he did. They, they say the Persians had 100,000 men. But after that, Alexander moved from just being a soldier, a general, into being an emperor, into being a ruler of an empire, the defeat of the Persians. And at the coronation, he had a diadem put on his head. He had purple robes placed around his shoulder. And purple robes, it wasn't just a a sort of vision of power. It was a vision of expense because Purple, of course, that that Syrian purple was made from the murex mollusk, and they've always said it took about a hundred kilograms of sea snail, of rock snail, the murex, to to create just one gram of purple dye from the from the mucus of that mollusk. So you can see that that's how expense and privilege was was generated and projected. Just as in Tudor times, in the paintings of Hans Holbein, you saw the rich, the successful, the powerful wearing black, black dye, expensive dye, the most expensive dye that came from the oak gall. So whether it's in portraits of Sir Thomas More or portraits of uh, the ambassadors, they're all in black because that's what they wanted to project. And so gemstones and headdresses are all. Look at the Incas, for example. They wore plumed headdresses. The Inca rulers, such as Atahulpa. There you had the uh, Caracara 
bird, the falcon, that, that crested bird, producing feathers that went into the headdresses. And then you saw all the gold being worn by the rulers, both gold and precious stones. The walls covered in gold of the temples and covered in precious stones. It was the blessing of the gods that came down. And that's part of the vision. That's part of what the rulers want to generate. You see it again uh, with the Aztecs. They too had plumed headdresses. In ancient Egypt, you had the, the double crown of upper and lower Egypt. So all the time, you're trying to get this projection of power and authority. You can move forward into the 19th century, for example, and the coronation of King George IV, in England, that that lover of kitsch, that lover of excess. And there he had his coronation crown made for him. He wasn't allowed by Parliament to buy the stones, so he hired them. And that crown, his coronation crown, and the frame is still there, but not the stones, because they were sent back to all those who lent them. That crown had 12,314 diamonds in it. Absolutely staggering. And it certainly beat the crown of uh, Peter the Great in Russia a hundred years before that had 5,000 diamonds. But you can see precious stones are always there, always play their part, glinting in the background. That takes us on really to the British coronation, the recent coronation that we've had, and the British crown jewels. There are 23,000 precious stones in the crown jewels held at the Tower of London, and they all have their history. A lot of the histories of individual stones were lost and, and can't really be proved because in 1649, the parliamentary forces under Oliver Cromwell, of course, came along and, and cut them all up, including the crown of Edward the Confessor. But that had been around since the 11th century. And new crowns were later made in 1660 for the coronation of Charles II. But individual stones still have their legends and their histories. For example, there's the Cullinan II diamond. That's 317 carats in the imperial state crown. You get the Stuart sapphire on the back of the band of the uh, crown. Uh, at the top under the cross, you get the uh, fantastic sapphire, the St. Edward's sapphire. But most impressive of all, certainly to me, is the ruby spinel, the Black Prince's ruby on the front of the imperial state crown. So you can forget your Cullinan one, which is 530 carats in the sovereign scepter. It's the Black Prince's ruby that might just have a bit of history that is true because that was owned originally, so it is said, by the Prince of Granada, uh, Abu Said, who was killed and it was taken from him by Pedro of Castile, Pedro the Cruel, who later gave it in payment to the Black Prince in 1367. And so it made its way into the British crown jewels or the English crown jewels at the time. And it's said that that ruby or that spinel was in the helmet 
of Henry V at, at Agincourt in 1415. It's also said that that jewel or that those jewels in that helmet prevented Henry V from being killed uh, by an axe or a sword blow uh, directed at him by a French duke during the battle. And given that Henry V had already as a teenager been wounded just below the eye by an arrow at the Battle of Shrewsbury, in which his father, Henry IV, was leading uh, the English forces against Harry Hotspur, you can see that Henry V had quite a lot of brushes with death. But that ruby spinel, other rubies, um, other gems, uh, have played their part in British pomp and pageant ever since. Of course, I've mentioned the Cullinan One in the Sovereign Scepter. The largest uh, diamond in the world is actually the Golden Jubilee Diamond. It's a brown diamond, and that's 545 carats. So it's larger than the Cullinan One, but of course, the Cullinan One is the largest clear-cut diamond in the world. So there's always a bit of competition between these different uh, precious stones, between these different royal families and different collectors. But I think the crown jewels probably pip everyone in the world, even to this day. So you have the British royal jewels, the crown jewels, but other European nations also had their jewellery. I mentioned Peter the Great's crown, and the Russians had an enormous collection, a huge treasury of items built up over the years. We can talk about the monomach cap, the crown, the coronation crown, worn by Ivan the Terrible in the 16th century. And that's an extraordinary gold-panelled cap with a cross on the top. Uh, it has precious stones. Some say it's actually 14th century uh, originally rather than 16th century. So it goes back a long way. It could have been Byzantine. It could have been Mongol. Some even say it was a female headdress. I don't think Ivan the Terrible or Ivan the Great, as the Russians call him, would have been pleased with that. But it's pretty inclusive, you have to admit. So that's that. And then you get other crowns in the treasury and the royal collection in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, including the nuptial crown and other crowns. But it is that Ivan the Terrible crown that is so important. In Germany, there was less sort of adherence, uh, less sort of interest in the royal treasury because Germany, of course, was a much later power. It was 1871 that it came into being after Prussia pushed things forward. And the last great crown, really, of the Germans was Kaiser Wilhelm II's crown. And that was actually a privately owned crown. And it's now back in the Hohenzollern Castle. And Kaiser Wilhelm II took it with him into exile in the Netherlands after the Great War. There are other European countries as well, St. Peter's crown or the Holy Crown in Hungary. Probably the most ancient crown in existence today. It was first used in 1000 AD for the crowning of King Peter, uh, St. Peter. And 
from that period, a bit like St. Edward's crown that was cut up in England in 1649. It's not the greatest quality gold, not the greatest quality uh, precious stones. It's, it's got enameled panels around it. It's got a, a bent cross on, on its uh, summit as it was uh, placed and stored in a metal chest and that bent the cross on the top. But it managed to get looked after during the Second World War and then smuggled to the Americans in 1945 and kept at Fort Knox until Jimmy Carter returned it to Hungary in the 1970s. A lot of these crowns have had an extraordinary peripatetic route back to the original source, back to their original owners. You can certainly see that in the story of the French crown jewels, some of which are on display at the Louvre today particularly the coronation crown of Louis XV. Uh, and although the stones have been replaced by glass, there is certainly one great diamond that was originally in the crown that is now kept separate. That is the 140 to 145 carat regent diamond, lovely diamond, but it's kept separate. And most of the other jewels have, have sort of vanished. In fact, it's said that the great blue diamond of Louis XIV has ended up with the Smithsonian as the Hope Diamond, which is a 45 carat um, blue diamond. It turned blue by boron uh, during its evolution, its creation. French crown jewels, because of the French Revolution, were dispersed. In fact, in 1792, there was a theft of those crown jewels, um, led by a man called Paul Miette, and he and his gang uh, tunneled in or managed to break into the hotel in which they were being kept in Paris and over a week they managed to take all the jewellery out including a fantastic uh, ruby spinel in the shape of a dragon but many of those stones were returned and, and many of those gang members were actually uh, tracked down and executed but uh, Miette managed to get away. No one quite knows his identity or what kind of plot developed around those jewels but again you know, you, you get these these stories uh, around these jewels. So often, it's the large private collections of jewels that have extraordinary stories about them. You look at the Romanovs in Russia, they had an amazing collection of jewels, and th they've essentially vanished. Who knows whether Putin's using a ruby or a diamond as a paperweight from that collection, but certainly after the revolution, they disappeared. In fact, it's said that many of the private jewels of the Romanovs were sewn into the corsets of the princesses, the four princesses, the daughters of Tsar Nicholas II. And when it came to the execution of the Tsar and his family in 1918 in the House of Special Purpose in Ekaterinburg, one of the reasons the children weren't killed immediately it was because the jewellery in their corsets acted as bulletproof vests for them and they had to be finished off with bayonets and pistols. An absolutely tragic story. You look at the private collection of the uh, British monarchy, for example, there is an incredible collection of jewellery, often far more interesting than the actual crown jewels themselves. Some of the items that have come into the royal collection have been through 
conquest and defeat of our enemies and adversaries abroad. You take the amazing Huma bird of the Tipu Sultan, defeated by Arthur Wellesley, later the Duke of Wellington in 1799. And that Huma bird, amazing bird covered in rubies and pearls and emeralds, actually sat above the canopy of Tipu Sultan of Mysore. And that ended up with the royals, as did the base of Tipu Sultan's throne, which is a gold rock crystal tiger head with a paws. Absolutely amazing bit of bit of carving. So those are in the royal collection. You see the necklaces and tiaras given given by King Fahd or King Faisal or King Khalid over the years. In fact, in 1947, the Queen was given a 300 diamond necklace by the Nizam of Hyderabad, and we'll get on to the Nizams of Hyderabad, spectacularly wealthy uh, Indian rulers. Um, but those sorts of gifts have ended up with the British royal family, and they they do look absolutely spectacular. Going back to the Cullinan diamond uh, that has put, been put in the uh, sovereign scepter and in the imperial state crown, there were nine diamonds cut from the original rough diamond, and they've appeared in all sorts of areas, in uh, both as um, pear drop necklaces, as the the chips, the uh, uh, amazing Cullinan three worn by the Queen Mother and worn by Camilla at the coronation. So. These jewels uh, tend to get into uh, every kind of um, royal portrait that you can imagine. So you've had the British private collections, you've had the uh, Romanov private collections, and outside Europe, uh, you also get spectacular collections of jewellery. I mean, I've mentioned India, and it's worth starting there because the Maharajas and the rulers of India did have extraordinary wealth. And you look at the sarpeches, the the turban jewellery of the Maharajas, and they're spectacular. The Altani collection has an amazing collection of such gemstones, and they're the size of duck eggs. They're absolutely huge. And so those sarpeches, those aigrettes, the holders for feathers uh, that were put in turbans, again, extraordinarily jeweled, huge emeralds, huge diamonds. And those emeralds mostly came from Colombia, but there's sapphires too um, from Sri Lanka. Those sort of uh, stones, those were sort of often used as decorative art and as jewellery by the sort of rulers of India. The Nizams of Hyderabad had spectacular jewellery. In fact, the Nizams owned one of the largest diamonds, the fifth largest diamond in the world, the Jacob Diamond, about 184 carats. And that was kept in the shoe of one of the Nizams. <laughs> they had they had rocks lying everywhere. In fact, there's one amazing necklace with 21 uh, uncut diamonds just, just hanging down, 250 carats. Absolutely extraordinary bit of jewellery. It was always said that they could fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool with all the natural pearls they had. So... They certainly covered their floors with pearls. There were so many of them. They were so plentiful. And so that wealth 
was that sort of bling was everywhere. In fact, a friend of mine once stayed in Maharaja's palace and said there were not jewels, but there were actually Christmas baubles stuck into the ceiling of the palace. That, that's how much they liked the gaudiness of colorful objects, a bit like magpies. They just perpetually collected precious, semi-precious, and non-precious things that could just be put on display everywhere. One of the greatest collectors of uh, diamonds and rubies and other precious stones were the Mughal emperors. And you take someone like Shah Jahan, and he, of course, was the creator of the peacock throne, the original peacock throne that later was adopted by the Shahs of Iran. That peacock throne had 26,000 precious stones in it, including, of course, the famous or infamous Kohenor diamond, which ended up in Sikh hands and then was given to the British because the British came to aid the Sikhs um, in putting down revolt and fighting the enemies of the Sikh empire. So that, again, ended up in British hands and is now in Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother's crown. Uh, but of course, it's controversial because people like Modi in India are asking for it back. But given that it has uh, belonged to the Mughal emperors, to the Sikhs, to the Afghans, like a lot of precious stones, it's it's had a journey and no one can really claim that it absolutely belongs to them. But the peacock throne ended up being dismantled, rebuilt by other dynasties. The legs ended up being used in, in other thrones, a, a bit like the uh, rock crystal tiger head used in Tipu Sultan's throne, ending up in Windsor Castle today. There was also a mobile uh, throne um, that the Shahs of Persia used, and that's called the Nadari throne, which is actually in Iran today. And, and that's covered in gemstones and rubies and other things. So again, very ornate, because wealth and bling is what it's all about. Presentation is all. So that's really a, a rough history of precious stones, uh, a romp through the mines and uh, history of, of how these precious stones have ended up in royal collections and been used to project power and influence around the world. It's sort of soft power and hard stones to project soft power. And they are necessary because it's not just what the rulers want. It's what the people expect. They want to see show. They want to see pageant. And so we really come to the postscript. What are today's precious objects? What are today's precious stones? What is the best way for rulers to project influence and wealth and magnificence? Well, 
things are a little more low-key perhaps these days, but you could obviously talk about the watches that international leaders wear. I mean, we, we've seen President Macron take off his watch and try to hide that. Some people say it's a chronometer blue $80,000 watch. Others say it's a Bell & Ross watch at about $9,000, but he certainly wanted to hide it. <laughs> then you can talk about President Putin and his watches. Some say that his favorite watch and one he often wears is a rose gold vintage uh, Patek Philippe uh, perpetual calendar watch, uh, extremely valuable. But he has, it's rumored, a million dollars worth of watches, probably more. So those sorts of things are really the jewels, the crown jewels that you can see on display today. But perhaps it's something else. Perhaps it's the nuclear briefcases, really, the, 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 the real precious stones of today, because they're not just a symbol of power. They're a symbol of what could be done to enemies in case of uh, war in case of serious situations developing in the future. And it shows the ability of one side to face down the other. So it's no longer jewels. It's the nuclear briefcase or the nuclear football that carries the launch codes and the identification, the authority codes of that president um, in that briefcase. So that's another indication of power. But in other parts of the world, other things are sought after, other things are needed. It's no coincidence that when the English settlers went to Jamestown and they traded with Powhatan, the uh, Native American Indian leader uh, in the Jamestown area around the James River, they were dealing with beads. They were giving copper objects. So different things have different value in different areas and locations. In fact, in southern Madagascar today, uh, people have been warned not to go to the south because if you have blue eyes, you're likely to have them gouged out and taken for witchcraft purposes. And that's not just a rumor. It has actually happened. They don't put that in the tour guides. Most rulers spend a great deal of effort and time looking after protecting the gemstones and treasures that they acquire. Take Frederick the Great. He actually employed camels to transport his beloved collection of fabulous gem-encrusted snuff boxes across Prussia uh, to Potsdam and elsewhere because of their measured tread and the fact that wagons would probably damage these priceless objects. Of course, it can go horribly wrong. You get the old rogue Colonel Thomas Blood attempting to steal the crown jewels from the Tower of London in 1671. You take something like the Spoonmaker's Diamond that's now in the Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, which apparently at one stage was found in a bin. So things can go awry. But perhaps for all leaders, they need to be reminded of mortality. Maybe they should all have a slave holding that circlet of oak leaves over their head and whispering in their ear, Memento Mori, you must one day die.
because, of course, it happens to everyone. Occasionally, those great generals of Rome that paraded in their triumphs had their faces painted red to look like Jupiter, the god of war. Or maybe it was just a portent of future heart disease and, in times to come, of coronary bypass operations. I speak from experience. But that's Caesar. There's another form of perspective, and that's given to us by Edward the Confessor, son of Ethelred the Unready, king of the Anglo-Saxons who died in January 1066, which led, obviously, to the terrible campaign between Harold and William the Conqueror, and English history changed forever after that. But he ended up as patron saint, not only of England, until he was ousted by St. George. He, to this day, is the patron saint of the British royal family, and also of failed marriages. So that not only is irony, it's also perspective of a sort. So until next time on Bloody Bites, thank you and goodbye. So it goes. His name is James Jackson. My name is Tom Ashton. You've been listening to Bloody Bites from Bloody Violent History. Please pass this podcast on to a friend. You can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.